if you look, if you plan it ahead of time, so here, here's a metaphor I use because I, because I agree I do some real estate investing as well. And, you know, they've been, I've been hearing for 15 years that it's going to bust. Right. And, and it hasn't. Um, but there is always risk, right? Even when, even when COVID hit, I remember when COVID hit, people were going up, oh, there goes the real estate market, you know, and kind of didn't quite work out that way. Um, and so, it's easy to accept or to believe that the party's never going to end. You know, the one thing I would say in any business, never believe the party is going to end. You, you have to plan for unforeseeable risk. So one of the metaphors I like to use is like poker. Poker is actually not a game of gambling, right? It is a game of skill in which chance is an element. This, there are unknowns, right? And so what poker players, so a, a, a rookie will beat a pro in a given hand, but a pro will always beat the rookie in the game, right? Which means that even though there's uncertainty and chance, the pro knows what the hell they're doing and they're going to win. And so real estate investing or any other business is the same thing. There is uncertainty. So how do you play the game in the face of uncertainty to take advantage of opportunity while mitigating your risk? My guest this week on the REI Branded Podcast actually by all medical recommendations at the time, uh, suggests that he should not even be with me. Um, incredibly, Warren was the second only baby to have received the surgery at the time for this particular medical uh, ailment situation that he had. And it was, his parents were basically told there would be no hope and uh, it worked. And since then, he's been on a mission to identify you know what is the thing that he should be doing to celebrate and have impact on the life that you know, almost shouldn't be uh, have been lived and it took him a while he he did a variety of things but has finally settled on entrepreneurship and has for the last 20 years been a business coach and we had a fascinating discussion around culture around strategy and the importance of it and the kind of things that entrepreneurs and business owners and real estate investors, investor business owners could be doing uh, to have business that matters and have, a, have an impact on the world beyond just their business. And it could be in a small way. It could be in a big way. Um, but he shares some fascinating examples and uh, stories, and he has some great tools that will help you do that. So enjoy the episode. You're listening to the REI Branded Podcast, helping you build your real estate personal brand. If you want to stand out from the crowd, attract the right leads, right partners, and right clients every time, you're in the right place. My name is Paul Kopkutt, and each week we'll be looking to decode and uncover what makes you, the real estate business owner, brandtastic. Each episode is intended to be valuable, cut to the chase, and actionable, so you can spend less time marketing your business and still get the results you want. Thank you for listening. Now let's get to work on making you brandtastic. So welcome, Warren. And uh, perhaps you can kick off and tell us a little bit about yourself, because uh, I noticed that you said you're a recovering lawyer. So that's maybe, true. maybe that's a, a good point to what's what does that mean? And then how did you get from law to what you're doing today? So give us a little bit of history. Sure. So yeah, a recovering lawyer is like, it's like, you're never allowed to say you're not one once you've become one. So I, I practiced down on Bay Street for about six and a half years uh, and then left to kind of pursue entrepreneurship. Uh, so that, I was in uh, civil litigation and administrative litigation. Uh, left, I sort of discovered it was, was with a really, really great firm, really highly ethical people, probably one of the most ethically focused places I've ever been and really great professionals. Um, but at the end of the day, I kind of liked making a pie more than fighting over a pie. So uh, I decided it was time to go on to do something else. And so I moved into entrepreneurship from there. And while I was doing entrepreneurship, I also became a professor. One of the things I was doing while, while building a business was just offering to teach some courses at college. So I became a college professor for a while. And in the midst of doing all of that, I was also an actor and a theater director. Uh, and then about 
in about 2022, sold my last business and then moved into business coaching, which was sort of by happenstance. I was looking for the next great thing to do. And in 2002, business coaching wasn't really a big thing. And a family friend was doing it. And I went, what right. the heck is that? And I looked into it and I thought, oh my God, that's just perfect for me and dove into it and haven't looked back since. Right. And I noticed it was action coaching. You must've been one of the first in Canada. Yeah, I was one of the, there, were, there were about, I mean, the, the original franchise holder in Canada, he did a really aggressive job of building. So they think that at one point there were about 90 within Canada. Um, and then it sort of dropped down a little bit from there. Right. But yeah, I was I was one of the earlier ones. Right. And why what gave you the the bug, the entrepreneurship bug? What was it that you was were you were you doing businesses on the side previously or was it something that you were always exposed to or it was something I was always interested in like when I was in high school I was in junior achievement and you know that kind of thing. But I think for me it's it's kind of a weird bio to start at birth but like when I was born, I was supposed to die. I was the second person in history to live through this weird congenital defect. And when I discovered that, like they gave my parents, they said, we got, he's got zero chance of survival, but we're just going to do this new experimental surgery. Uh, and it happened to work. And so when I, when I discovered that, it kind of, I don't know, lit a little bit of a fire. I felt I needed to do something with this gift of life that I wasn't supposed to have. So that's actually why I went through so many incarnations. I was trying to find that thing where I felt I was making an impact, you know? So I went into law because I thought I might go into politics. Uh, found out I didn't really like that so much. Went in a professorship, you know, influencing young minds, art, theater, the transformative power of art and all of that. And then really it was an entrepreneurship that I, it really started to sing to me. I believe kind of at the core of my being that entrepreneurship is not the only, but one of the most powerful forces for positive social change. Um, I believe entrepreneurs, you know, they create solutions to problems. And if, uh, and so getting into that game was a place like you can influence people's lives through employing them, through providing quality goods and services to helping address problems that people have. And the better you can do it, then the more impact you can have. And that's what kind of took me into business coaching was if I can help people do it better, then they're going to be more successful, more and bigger impacts on the people that they're wanting to help. So that's kind of, how I got there. It's an interesting. Do you think that you were more willing to try different things because you had that, that gift of life that you shouldn't have had? Yes. Do you think that's something that in your mind you said, yeah, I'm going to go try that because I shouldn't be here anyway? Or is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I did a lot of create, like I threw on a backpack and, you know, walk, went around Southeast Asia before going to Southeast Asia was a thing. Uh, went to Tunisia, went down to the boat docks and asked some fishermen if I could work on the boat with them and had to hide underneath the boat when the Tunisian Navy stopped them and extorted them for fish. And, you know, I just did a bunch of <laughs> crazy stuff, but it was, it was that, yeah, I wanted to explore things. I wanted to find out where I could play the most. Hmm. And when did you find out in life? When did your parents tell you? You know, I don't, I don't remember that there was a sit down, let's have a conversation. It was more, it was just always like they never tried, they never hid it from me, right. you know? And right. so like when I was young, I was sick a fair amount. Um, and so there was just always this, oh yeah, you know, because of that surgery you had as a kid, you might be having an infection now. So we got to take you in for a checkup. And so it was not, it wasn't a like Warren, we need to have a chat now. It was just sort of always in the air. And so I always knew it. And somewhere along the way, it made me, st I started to think, well, wait a sec, I'm not even supposed to be here. Right. Uh, so I better, I better do something with it. And did, uh, did your parents tr treat you differently or do you feel that they, uh, yeah, cause um, I, I would, I would imagine a lot of parents would end up with bubble wrap <laughs> around you know, they, uh, a little bit, but not, not a ton. I think the only, mm. the only bubble wrap thing, my mom, you always used to say, you know, don't wet it too hard, you know? <laughs> um, and they would check in to make sure I was okay. And, you know, I was had to make sure I had educational stuff, but, um, no, my, my folks were actually pretty, for for all of us, they were like, who you are is who you are, and we want to encourage you to be you. Right. And so they never said, we want you to go a particular direction, or we don't want you to do certain things. Like, I'll tell you, like, the best gift I ever received in my life is when I left law to go start entrepreneurship. My dad was a guy who worked for one company from when he was in high school until he retired. So the idea of 
going to university for seven years and then working for six and a half years at a Bay Street law firm and then leaving was just mind-blowing to him, right? But even though he didn't understand it, he bought me a book that Christmas on how to write a business plan, (laughs) which was, you know, it's not that I needed that help, but it was just, that was my dad's way of saying, I don't understand it, but I support it. And I guess that was kind of like what I grew up with, like they'd support whatever. So I never felt bubble wrapped. I felt a little bit like I had to be a little bit more careful than the others, but I was always encouraged to do whatever I wanted. Nice. Nice. And that's that book. That's an interesting concept because business plans, a lot of people say now, oh, I don't bother with a business plan. Is that something you still advocate or? Um, I'm, I'm a, so I separate strategic plan from business plan. Okay. Um, when you're starting a business, it's good to go through the business planning process to understand what you're at. Like you've got to go through the work about understanding who your target market is, how you're going to market them, understanding your competition. But to do the, you know, the big fat 40 page business plan they have to submit to a bank, that's largely a useless exercise. Um, or, an, you know, it's, it's a lot of excessive effort. What I do now with clients is I do like very focused strategic planning, which is what are we going to do over the next year? But when you are, when you're first starting a business, it's good. See, the value of a business plan isn't the plan, it's the planning, right? So it's the, it's the fact that you have to think about, oh, there is competition. Well, what am I going to do about that? Oh, there is cash flow requirements. So where am I going to get the money to, to you know, run the cash flows? I, I'm not going to be able to do it all myself. So I'm going to have to hire people. Well, what would that orgs chart look like? And you know, how many people, what's the minimum number of people I need to hire? So it's the planning process that gets you thinking about it. But do I encourage people to every year sit down and do a 40-page business plan? No bloody way. Right. Because um, <laughs> most of the time, those things too, uh, people say, you know, do your five-year business plan. I don't know anybody who plans five years. They might set five-year goals. But if you set a five-year plan two years ago, it's useless okay. now right. Right? right? in the face of COVID. So I think it's good to have a vision for where you want to go, have some long-term objectives, but you plan within one-year cycles. I, th- I think a lot of people would hear the word strategy, though, and they would say, well, that's all, you know, that's a, that's a complicated thing. That's something that big corporates mm-hmm. have to do. You know, that's, you know, I've, I've come, you know, I came from a kind of classic corporate background originally, and that would be the kind of thing corporates would do. But it, is it equally important for a small or medium-sized business to be doing this? 100%. Now, so strat, let me just define the term because I understand mm-hmm. people sometimes think that's a really big term. Strategy is nothing more than the answer to the question, how do I deploy my scarce resources of time, team, and money to achieve an objective? That's it. So if you have an objective and you only have those three resources, time, team, or money, that's it. That's all you have to play with. And so you got to figure out how am I going to move them on the board to achieve what it is I want to achieve? If you got lots of money, then you can hire a client who... He had sold a previous business, so he had like, you know, $50 million. So he plowed in a whole bunch of money, hired everybody out of the gate. He got up to a million in a month within six months. Other people who don't have as much money, they got to put in the time, right? Because they don't have the money to put in. So you got to think about how you're using those resources. Now, strategy plays at a bunch of different levels, right? You've got large, high-level like brand strategy. And then you've got operational strategy, and then you might have an HR strategy or a marketing strategy. So when I'm talking about it, I'm talking about operational strategy, which is saying at the beginning of the year, if that's when it is, or whatever time you're in, you're here, you want to get here. Well, how are you going to do that? And what are the priorities? See, one of the, one of the big mistakes that almost all entrepreneurs make, and investors do the same thing, even real estate investors, they, they try to do too much at once. Right. And so they get to this exercise where they're doing 23 things at once. They get exhausted. It's 10 months into the year. They got a few things on the 10 yard line. Nothing is finished. So nothing is fundamentally changed, but they're exhausted. Right. And that's because they're trying to do too much and they're playing whack a mole. Whereas I say, if you can do two significant things a quarter, you'll have done eight major changes over the course of a year. You show me five businesses that have done eight major changes over the course of a year, you won't find that many. And so the exercise, as I say, like the planning, it's the planning process that's as important as the plan. Going through the exercise of saying, oh my God, I got 23 things to do. Which are the most important? And which do I have resources to do anything about? 
Okay, those are the two things I'm going to focus now. Yes, there's six other things that I care about, but they're going to have to wait. I'm going to put them over here. But these are the two I'm going to focus on. When you're able to do that, that's when you start moving the needle. How and you start is inspiring it? your team too, because then like, oh, I've got a leader who has focus. Right. How easy is it to define those two things? Sorry, which two things? Well, so you've got tw- I've got twenty three things. I'm sitting there. Oh, and- I see. Yeah. So, so I- yeah, you have to go. Th- have you have to go it. through a process. So right. one of the things I, I actually created a a software tool. I call it the Business That Matters Playbook, and it automates that process. It just asks you three hundred questions. And you answer them yes, no, and sometimes put in some qualifications, and it automatically populates what's called a SWOT analysis, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. It does it in an automated way. And then from there, it gets a little Rorschachy. You know, you have to look at it and see the patterns. And generally, the answers to those questions will reveal the things that you need to focus on. And it's important to ask that number of questions because the other mistake that people make is they confuse symptoms with problems. And so they start hitting at the symptoms rather than getting to the problem. But when you actually really dig in, so you say, well, we have a sales problem. We better sell more. Okay, but why aren't you selling more? Well, our salespeople suck. So maybe we got to fire the salespeople. Well, maybe, but why do the salespeople suck? Well, I don't know. Well, do you train them? Mm, Sort of. Do you have a sales management process? Mm, No. Hmm. So if you go fire those salespeople, bring in new salespeople into an organization with no training and no sales management process, what do you think is going to happen? Right. <laughs> so the problem isn't the salespeople. It's the pro- you know, so you got you to figure out what the actual problem is that you're trying to solve so that you can dedicate the resources to, to addressing the right thing. And so it's that by doing that deep analysis in every area. And so when you do a SWOT analysis, I cut it across seven areas of business. So there's like, when I ask people to do, this is what, how I got here. I used to say, do a SWOT analysis. People would come back and they'd come back with 12 things. And then by the time I get done with them, there'd be like 150. And so you got to look at each area of your business, you know, your, your product. Do you have the right product? Do you have the product features you need? Are there products that are unnecessary? You know, then you've got to look at your promotions, which is your unique selling proposition, your marketing, your sales. Then you got to look at your people and your process and your um, planning cycles and your principles. Uh, and then when you go through each of those, then you'll be able to pull out, oh, okay, this is where we need to work. I'd, I'd imagine a SWOT analysis, people probably find it fairly easy to work on or identify some of the strengths and maybe some of the weaknesses, but are opportunities and threats the areas that people struggle with, or is it the other way around? So when you say struggle with, um, I find a lot of people are actually harder on themselves. They're pretty good at coming up with the weaknesses, but gen- but even at that though, they they go for the high level weaknesses. They don't really look at the things below it, right? There's an old quote that says, "We don't we don't rise up to the level of our goals; we sink to the level of our systems." And so often, what people don't look at is like, "Why is this broken? Like, why are we struggling with this?" And it's usually something you know, either we, we're not clear on where we want to go, or we don't have a defined system, or we haven't trained people properly, or we don't have a, a process for recruiting people properly. Um, and so when you get, so even though they're good at identifying weaknesses, they're not necessarily good at identifying the root cause weaknesses. Opportunities and threats, um, because they're external, it depends largely on how connected they are to the larger community in which they operate. You know, so I've got I've got clients, for instance, who who work internationally in different software. They're very tapped into what's going out there. They can tell you this software is coming down the pipe. This trend is happening. There's legislation happening in Thailand that's affecting us. You know, and so they're right on top of it. Um, others who are more, you know, just servicing an existing client base, they're the ones that sometimes get blindsided by stuff that they haven't been paying attention to. There's some competitor who's dealing with AI and they've never thought of AI. And all of a sudden they're dealing with something they never had to deal with before. Right. Just thinking of the, the audience, uh, real estate. I, mean, yes. I, I, I can't believe you haven't seen a headline about real estate in the last, <laughs> yeah, in the last year or two. Um, yes. Is there a danger that, you know, everything is rainbows and unicorns right now? Because I mean, you, and, and no disrespect to anybody who's listening, but it's pretty hard not to buy a house right now as a real estate investor and make some money on it. Right. Um, what, what, are the, what are the things that real estate investors right now, because I, 
I mean, we're all thinking this has to end. <laughs> maybe it doesn't. I mean, maybe the economists will tell us this goes on forever because Canada has a need for housing and, and everything else. But I mean, there has to be at least, I think the general consensus is there has to be some kind of correction. And it looks like potentially even here in Canada and you're in Canada, you know, the federal government is going to step in and do something about, about mm-hmm. this, which is probably not something that real estate investors were expecting two years ago. So a threat that they never saw. Um, what are the things that an entrepreneur or a business owner needs to be doing when suddenly this this threat comes in from left field that they're not anticipating or suddenly they're all the opportunity that they've seen suddenly shrinks or disappears. Right. And so, you know, I, I would actually say the question is, how do you prepare for the unknown? Well, like if it's already happened, it's almost too late, right? Like if you're reacting, that's what happened with COVID, right? You know, COVID hit. And if you hadn't done good cash flow planning, you're pretty screwed. Like, you know, then you're like, okay, what do I do now? Okay. And I was doing seminars about that when COVID first hit. And it was like cash flow management, supply chain management, customer relations. That's it. That's your whole universe right then. Um, but if you look, if you plan it ahead of time, so here, here's a metaphor I use because I, because I agree I do some real estate investing as well. And, you know, they've been, I've been hearing for 15 years that it's going to bust. Right. And, and it hasn't. Um, but there is always risk, right? Even when, even when COVID hit, I remember when COVID hit, people were going up, oh, there goes the real estate market, you know, and kind of didn't quite work out that way. Um, and so it's easy to accept or to believe that the party's never going to end. You know, the one thing I would say in any business, never believe the party is going to end. You, you have to plan for unforeseeable risk. So one of the metaphors I like to use is like poker. Poker is actually not a game of gambling, right? It is a game of skill in which chance is an element. This, there are unknowns, right? And so what poker players, so a, a, a rookie will beat a pro in a given hand, but a pro will always beat the rookie in the game, right? Which means that even though there's uncertainty and chance, the pro knows what the hell they're doing and they're going to win. And so real estate investing or any other business is the same thing. There is uncertainty. So how do you play the game in the face of uncertainty to take advantage of opportunity while mitigating your risk? And so, you know, some of the things are really look at your cash flow. Don't be in a position where if a 2% swing in interest rates is going to sink you, you've got a bad business model, right? That's, that's not a good place to be. So you got to look at your business from a from a risk mitigation standpoint and say, okay, so what what kind of what's this what's the uh, either drop in value or raise in interest rates that I can absorb and not be subject to you know an existential risk? And when you get close to that, then you have to be, maybe you got to slow down your acquisitions, right? Or you got to change your cost structure a little bit to make sure that you're covered, and then to make sure that you've got good cash flow. I mean, one of my clients. She was in an industry that got just killed when COVID hit. Like I'm talking an entire collapse of demand. But she had done, I've been working with her for a long time. And so she'd done a really great job of cash flow management. And so she didn't lay off a single person. And she got the whole team strategizing on how to pivot. They moved into an adjacent area of business and they've had their best two years ever. Wow. But that was because they positioned themselves well ahead of the crisis to handle a crisis. You know, a, a mentor of mine, he likes to use the, the metaphor of seasons. In business, there's always seasons, right? There's spring, summer, fall, and winter. And there's always going to be a winter. Right. And if you're not prepared for winter, you're going to get cold. <laughs> <laughs> Which you and I know in Canada. So exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You, you talked earlier about the uh, assessment that you have, the 300 questions, um, uh, and mentioned business that matters. What What is business that matters, and, and why is that important? Ah, that's sort of my focus. That's my sub under Warren Coughlin. I call it, you know, build a business that matters. And a business that matters is one that provides a really great lifestyle for the entrepreneur and his or her family um, while having positive impacts in the world. 
whether it's just some small corner of it or a larger environment. And those ways of making the world better can be, you know, like I, as a, you know, in the, in the real estate I have, I try to make sure that I've provided a good home for somebody. I don't want to be a slumlord, right? So I have, I have good appliances in there. The house is well-maintained. You know, I want that I'm providing a good home for someone as part of that, you know, as part of that business. So that, or it can just be, I've got a client who his whole thing is about providing an environment in which people grow. You know, his business isn't one that has necessarily observable external, large social positive impacts, but he's providing a fantastic place for his team to kind of become the best they can be and supports them in their personal aspirations. So there's lots of ways it can do it, but it's really saying, I like to work with entrepreneurs who want to have some positive impact. And I believe a business that matters is one that succeeds so that it can optimize its impacts, but also is conscious about having some impact. And how does a business owner, an entrepreneur understand or or identify what that is? Is this a vision values type of exercise? It's it's interesting. Some people do it accidentally. Like they don't even know they're doing it. They're just sore. I've, I've got a client she's she's just wonderful she's she's in a professional service business that was just wouldn't in in and of itself you wouldn't identify as necessarily you know uh, an impact business but she's so values driven that she just organically does everything so like she's built sustainability and good hr practices and caring for the community it just kind of oozes out of her right and if you asked her does she is she have a business that matters? She until you know a couple of years ago, she probably would have went, "What? I don't know. I'm just running my business." Um, there are other people who it requires some thought. You know, like how am I going to run a business? You know, like if you're a, I don't know, let's say you have a, a you know somebody who supports your real estate investors, so somebody who does a property management business, for instance, right? Property management, you'd have to say, okay, how do I do that in a way? that has some positive impact. So how do I treat my people? How do I treat tenants? How do I treat uh, the suppliers that I'm hiring to look after things in the property, right? And can I do those things in a way that's that's ethical? And how does that cascade down to the, the team, the people that work for the organization from a culture mm-hmm. perspective? So it does, I find for the most part, there's, there's exceptions to every rule, but for the most part, People who work in an organization that has some kind of values orientation or a commitment to excellence or a commitment to doing good, they attract better people. They keep people longer. Their people become more productive because they care and they know that they're respected and they know that their contributions actually matter. So it actually does really good things within an organization. Uh, People just become, like I say, I think more productive. So your cost per person actually drops. You know, not well. I didn't say that right. Your your salary may be comparable, but because your people are more productive, you require fewer people, right? And so you wind up having higher margins and things like that. And now, and we're talking coming up for two years COVID now. Mm-hmm. And obviously, the big thing that's happened is the withdrawal from the work environment. I mean, probably mm-hmm. from a real real estate perspective. Commercial real estate or offices may not be the place to be right now, but right. from an investment point of view. But having said that, what does the, how does an entrepreneur or a business owner manage culture via Zoom? Or yeah, how do, how do they manage to maintain that in a so way a in a way that super, they can still deliver? Yeah, that's a super important question, um, and it's not easy. The client I mentioned that you know had the cash reserves and did a great job. Her culture got better during COVID, even though they were remote, but it required a huge amount of intentionality. Like it's, you know, there's some estimates that it takes four times as much effort to get to the same level of engagement um, with people. Um, and so it does require you to be in touch with people. It requires you to f- to kind of make opportunities for people to collaborate on things with each other. Um, you have to consciously make opportunities for people to work cross-departmentally. You know, now in real estate investing, so if if you're doing larger real estate investing and you have suppliers and things like that who go in and do the construction work or renovation work or property management work and all that kind of stuff, you can you can help build a culture within your community of of providers. Like I, you know, I like 
in mine, we have the same property management company who hires the same, you know, renovation businesses and that kind of thing, right? So it would be just communicating with people on a regular basis, making sure you send notes of appreciation and gratitude, um, paying attention to things that are going on in their lives. You know, if you're, it's a lot, it's a lot of it is about making people feel that they are valued and appreciated, you know, and that's, there's hundreds of ways of doing that. Like we could probably do a whole podcast just on that. But the, really the thinking is if, if people are on their own, how do I make them feel appreciated and valued? It's the spontaneous call. It's the handwritten note. It's, you know, a little thing that's sent to the house. It's recognizing they have kids and maybe, you know, scheduling things at a time that is, uh, you know, sensitive to what their home requirements are you know, giving them flexibility in their start times, connecting them, having online socials, just uh, I'm part of a group. And uh, after, after one of our meetings, they have sort of a, an online drinks time where it's just, they play a you know music list and everybody gets together and have drinks. You can go into breakout rooms if you want to, you know, and it's just encouraging that sort of social interaction. And how important is the company's culture um, be connected to those suppliers because those suppliers are not employees. Right. Then um, is that still, I, I think a lot of people might look at it and say, well, the culture is just the company. I mean, whoever we hire to do that, it's not necessary for them to be involved, but it, it's sounding like you're saying that's important. I just want to stop a second and ask you about your web presence you know that people are going to Google and check you out online if they want to do business with you. And so it's incredibly important that you have a reliable, secure hosting web service and a stable hosting plan that provides fast site speed. And if you're installing a website for the first time, a nice, easy-to-use, secure, one-click system to install WordPress. That's why I recommend and use Bluehost, which powers more than 2 million websites online and is the number one recommended hosting provider by WordPress. It's got 24-7 support, which is really good, free security certificates, and a free domain name registration. Uh, Bluehost web hosting is a powerhouse. If you'd like to get a special offer through this podcast, go to the show notes from this episode, click on the Bluehost uh, image or link, and they'll take you straight there to get a special offer. Now back to the show. It, de- it depends on the nature of the business. I've got, I've got, I have a number of clients who have subcontractors who they really bring into the fold, you know, and make part of the family. And those people really understand the culture and they're able to, when you do that, they're able to live those values better. Right. Like if, if you are just do not just it, but if your focus is real estate investing, but let's say your positioning is, I want to make sure that my tenants have a great place to live where things don't break down and their home is reliable and comfortable, you know, and so there is renovation work. If you have a subcontractor who knows that they are an A-list subcontractor to you, meaning they, they will be your first call every time they have a need. And they understand what your values are and what your expectations are. If they don't want to lose that A-list relationship with you and you communicate what your expectations are, they're more likely, it's not a guarantee, but they're more likely to deliver on that value, right? And then your tenants wind up having the experience that you want them to have. And that just you know makes your, your business easier. We were, before we started the uh, the interview, we were talking about some other tools that you've got on on your website, and I noticed one is the top uh, right life. Is that right? There's the yes, top right to, living. Yes, top right living. Um, and again, I think this is a, a COVID related thing. People are questioning fulfillment. They're questioning purpose. Does that assessment help people kind of get a little bit more connected to? what's important to them or? Yes. Yeah. I mean, top right living is a metaphor for living a life where you are both satisfied and engaged, where you have, you know, it's like a two by two. 
And so your satisfaction in terms of having the external stuff that people want in life, you know, the house, the car, the 2.3 kids and private school, blah, 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 <laughs> but also still being really engaged. And there's some things that go into producing that kind of outcome, you know, producing a life that, and, and when you're in that top right quadrant, you are more fulfilled because when you're not, there's a lot of people I, in the four quadrants, there's another quadrant called the bystander, right? right. So you've got the stuff, you got the money but you're bored out of your tree. You sit in the basement eating Doritos, watching Survivor and wondering why you're bored, you know, and there's things you can do to get out of that bystander quadrant and get more engaged. And then there's some people who are victims. They, they're, they're not in the happy state they want, like they don't have the stuff. They're not comfortable. They're not economically secure and they're not engaged. They sort of don't care. And then it's like everybody else's fault. So they're a victim. And neither of those places is a very happy place to be. Um, and so the trick is how do you, what are the things you can put in place to get engaged? And that's what, so I've got a little cheap little course on how to do that, but it's, it's very, I had a guy who he studied with a bunch of the gurus in the States and stuff. And he actually told me that that top right living is the best personal development model he'd encountered. Hmm. And it's uh, interesting is that how many times a simple quadrant helps people understand things and make, yeah. and make change. Well, once you once you identify which quadrant, then there's there's a there's a seven step model as to how you right. improve in each of those. Right. Um, I, I tell you, just I'll quickly do three of them. Just you know, right. give it away. But challenge, contribution, and connection. If you look at the activities you do, if you look at if you look at the happiest events in your life, I'd be willing to guess that most of them involve an an activity in which you had to stretch yourself or push yourself a little bit. You went further you were connected to other human beings or you deepened some connections with other human beings, or you felt you made a meaningful contribution to someone or something. And so if that's true, then how do you get more fulfilled and engaged? Challenge yourself in a way that connects you to other human beings in which you feel you're making a contribution. Right. It's, it's kind of arithmetic. Right. <laughs> what about the other, tell us a little bit about the other two assessments that you've got there, these, the seven Ps and the why you profit tool. Oh, yeah. So the, the seven P's assessment is based on this seven P model I have of like product process, people, personal growth, planning, and principle. And it um, asks you a bunch of questions and then it just plots where you are on a spider graph. So you can see I'm high here, low here. And the use of that is to help you do strategic planning. Like if you're really, really high on promotions, your next strategy doesn't need to be focusing on promotions, but if you're really low on process, yeah, maybe you want to spend a little time thinking about that. Okay. And then the set, the why, what's called why you profit, it's called why in the shape of a why. And it's because your, your business comes from one of two directions, either new customers or repeat customers, and they behave differently. And so there's different activities. So basically the thesis of it is there are eight and only eight numbers that drive all profitability in the world. So it's lead generation conversion rate on average dollar sale for new, and those three things again on repeat, then your gross margins and your overheads. If you do 7%, just little tiny 7% improvements in each of those eight numbers, you can drive profit growth in excess of 80%. Wow. And so that's, you know, and, but if you try to do 80% growth and profitability just through lead generation, you got to be really, really good at lead generation. Right. right. But under this model, you just have to get a little bit better, but consciously, thoughtfully better. I'm focusing on improving my conversion rate. I'm thinking about improving my overheads. I'm thinking about improving my repeat customer lead generation. And when you're very thoughtful about which of those numbers you're trying to influence, they leverage on each other and multi get a multiplicative effect and your profits kind of blow up. Hmm. Makes total sense. Yeah. Okay. And those are three assessments that people can go to your website and take. And yeah, they're free. Yeah, they're free under under uh, under the navigation. It's like uh, courses and resources and cool tools. Right. Okay, cool. Um, just going back to culture for a second. What happens if you have you've done every, you assuming you've done everything you can as a leader or as a business owner or as an entrepreneur? What happens if you have people that just don't buy into what you're trying to achieve? Don't buy into the culture. How do you handle that? What, you sh what so should the, you do as a good business leader? 
So the easy answer is you have to replace people. In practice, you know, that's sometimes hard to do, right? Especially now with the great resignation on. So that's what, if you, if you talk to people about culture, you know, you have somebody who's in a cultural fit, get rid of them. Um, that may wind up being the answer. Um, I usually start with trying to see if there is a way of engaging, like to get them aligned with the culture. You know, if people aren't aligned with the culture, it may be that they're just, if they, if they truly fundamentally are not values aligned, then they probably need to go because otherwise they'll undermine the culture. But sometimes it's just people aren't quite there. Like I had a client once, he was a, he was a young guy, um, young entrepreneur, and he said a couple things about his lower end customers that were really disrespectful and really kind of contemptuous. And I came home one and I had a thought, like I was going, should I keep coaching this guy? Like we're, we're, we don't seem values aligned. And I went, you know, he's young. He hasn't been out there very much. And I kept working with him and we talked about this stuff. And about six months later, he had a total shift in the way he was thinking about those customers. It was more because the truth of it was he just enjoyed dealing with the higher end customers. Right. And he, and the problem was his systems kept sucking him away from where he wanted to be. So he was sort of blaming them. And so when we put the things in place where he didn't have to deal with them, but they were still a profit center and they had, you know, his lower end customer were competitors, higher end customers. So they weren't, they were not riffraff. Um, and he wound up respecting. So I thought, no, so I was able to help him kind of get more values aligned. And so you can work with people like that. Sometimes you have to scaffold around someone. So I had a client once who had a salesperson who was responsible for like eight to $10 million a year in sales, not value, like was a culture catastrophe would just go in and blow things up internally. Um, and wasn't really willing to change, but even the even the rest of the team was like, well, we can't get rid of her because she's responsible for like, you know, one sixth of the business in the place. Um, and so, I suggested something that was not. It, it met some resistance initially because it cost them some money, but it was like ultimately they did this: hired essentially an executive assistant to act as the interface between this person and the rest of the team. The salesperson was not allowed to go in and talk to the, the other departments. Mm. And this other person was, and it was a mediated relationship. And so, but it communicated to everybody in the organization that, oh, the leadership actually, they're investing in preserving the culture while investing in preserving the business. Does, the, does something like that though, potentially, because they're not culturally aligned, potentially damage the, the organization's brand externally because of that? or Well, so, so that's a great point. But the, the interesting thing was this person was great with clients. Right. It was just on the internal side. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, so, so there's, there's ways, you know, if you and I talk more, you'll learn, like I'm never an absolutist. There's, there's, I, I always think of, you know, it's like under what circumstances do you do this? I, I, I think one of the biggest problems right now is people engage in binary thinking. It's like yes or no, either or. And I think that binary thinking gets people into a lot of problems. So when people say like, you know, someone isn't a part of the culture, should you get rid of them? To me, it's like, okay, under what circumstances do you get rid of them? And under what circumstances do you keep them? It's not a yes or no. But generally speaking, if you have someone in a culture who is behaviorally not aligned, you do have to take action because, and what that action is will depend on whether they're salvageable and be, can become part of the culture or can be scaffolded around, or they need to leave. The, the scary thing, I had a conversation with the client today, they were talking about leaving people. I said, you know what? I've been an entrepreneur now for 26 years. I have never seen or been part of an organization where somebody's departure created an existential risk for the organization. So as much as you you think, oh, what if I lose that person? You'll be fine. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and how do you stop that binary thinking? If you got any tips or because you're right, and I think a lot of us are we're under pressure. We've got to make a decision, and maybe that's what's driving the the binary. Yeah. Uh, so situation. I use a little tool. Um, just as it's just a simple way of doing it. It's called one three one. So it's. 
And it's a great tool to use internally. People can't come to ask a question until they've gone through this thinking. So one problem, three possible solutions, and one recommendation. Hmm. And the reason there's three possible solutions is to force you out of binary thinking. You have gotcha. to come up with three. Gotcha. I like that. My, I had a boss years and years ago. He, he was a binary thinker because his option was always come up with two, two options. And he always, right. because then he could make a binary decision, I guess. So. Yeah. The <laughs> binary, binary thinking tends to, I mean, that's what's created polarization socially, you know, is like either you're a capitalist or you're a socialist. Well, really? Those are the only two options? <laughs> right. You know, or you're right wing or you're left wing, or you're, you know, like that sort of the need to put everything in just two distinct camps. I think, I think it really, kills creative thinking mm. you know like even just you know in, in when people talk about well is there going to be a real estate bubble and it's like should i invest or shouldn't i invest well that's a silly way of framing the question it's how do i invest right? it's not should i shouldn't i it's it's how and under what conditions and what amount do i put at risk and what amount you know like it's not you, you need to have more more interesting more interesting questions than just simple yes or no or this or that. What else would you recommend to to an entrepreneur who is looking to run a business that matters? What what are the important things that they should be considering? Um, get really clear on why you're doing what you do. You know, it doesn't ha- you know it doesn't have to be grand and noble, but just you should have a reason for doing it. Right? That's that's beyond just money. Like even if you're doing it for the money, the money you're going to do something with the money, right? So what is that you want to do with the money? So have, have a reason why. Two, get clear on the values that you want to, that are super important to you. And then surround yourself with people who have those values. I, I made a mistake early on in my entrepreneurial career. I, I got into a relationship, business relationship with somebody. Probably my second meeting with the person, there was a flag. There was a flag on the play. <laughs> you know, and I ignored it and it bit me hard on the backside. Right. Um, and being in business with people who don't share your values will always lend in pain. Even if they can bring you money. There's a guy named uh, Tony Shea. He passed away last year. He was the founder mm-hmm. of Zappos.com. Yeah. And he, he said, I've met people who I know could make me a lot of money in my business, but I know that if I bring them in, they'll undermine my culture and I can't have that. Um, you know, so, and then, then the final thing is, and this is, I don't know, maybe daunting, but business is a, business is a discipline, right? It's, it's a set of skills. It isn't just, oh, I've got an idea, therefore I'm going to succeed. There are skills involved in running a business, learn them, study them, get mentors around them. Right now, it doesn't mean you have to know everything before you start. Your business can become your MBA program, right? But learn like selling. You know, selling is a skill. Investing is a skill. Learning how to calculate ROI, knowing how to manage cash flow, effective recruitment. There are techniques involved in each of these. This stuff is not. I do it from my gut. Right. There are there are approaches and skills and techniques and best practices. And the more you learn them and apply them, the more successful you'll be. And I believe, you know, my thing, you know, strategic planning is actually one of those foundational skills. It's the better you can do that, the better and more predictable your growth is going to be. And when it comes to strategic plan, a question I didn't ask earlier, how often should you be reviewing that, tweaking it? Or is it something that you should say, you know, or how much runway should you give a strategic plan? What's the... So there's two elements to that question, actually. There's in execution of the plan, you should be, you should, it should be your boss. It should be your weekly boss. Your, your, if all you have, this is the distinction between goals and plan. If all you have is objectives, you don't have a plan. A plan is the how are you going to do it and when, right? So that you need to be reviewing all the time and then tweaking as necessary. Like if you think this thing is going to take three weeks and it takes four weeks, then something else is getting bumped out and you better move that on your plan. Like keep it a living, breathing document that is always giving you guidance. And then every 90 days, you should be revisiting it and choosing your next strategic focus for your next 90 days. 
And then every year do a, a significant review of your SWOT analysis and go through the whole process over again. And why the 90 days? What's because uh, there's a the book, a 12 week year, I think I've right. mentioned previously on other podcasts. Um, why is that 90 day such a critical time frame versus having a strategic plan for the year and trying to make it happen over a year? So it's 90 days is long enough to get something done, but short enough to keep you focused. If you do it over a year, I, I, I tell you what happens. People who only do annual planning, and if you're listening and you've done it, you know this is true. You just plot along, something comes up, you get bumped off course, you react to things, you do shiny object syndrome, right? Where stuff comes up, you react to it, gets to be September, October, and you go, oh my God, <laughs> my objectives, I'm not going to reach them, right? And then you panic. Um, and it's people tend to leave things for too long. Whereas 90 days, it's like you can do course corrections and you can do improvements, right? And every 90 days you're recalibrating. Now, does it have to be 90? I've had businesses where we've done it on a trimester basis. So it's like, you know, thirds, right? Um, just because their, their sort of production cycle fit that better. Um, but I wouldn't do any longer than that because you need, you need that exercise of review and recalibration. If you don't do that, then you're just going to wind up at the end of the year panicking. And and is it okay to sit at the end of that 90 days or four months and say, there's the right strategy, but I didn't do this, this, this. So I'm going to reset and still go for the same strategy? Or Yeah, yeah absolutely. And especially when you're starting, here's my my significant... I, I actually have a, a free ebook on my website, or it's not really an ebook, it's just a guide. It's like seven steps to effective strategic planning. I'd encourage anybody to just go there and, and get it because it'll tell you how to do this. But one of the things I always suggest is your very first time, make your plan light. What most people do is they overestimate what they can do in the, in the short run and underestimate what they can do in the long run. So what they tend to do is they pack their first 90-day plan with 30 things, and they get none of it done, and then they go, this planning thing doesn't work, right? right? Whereas if you go, I'm just going to do a little bit, and then you set yourself up for success, and then you go, oh, I did all of that. I can do a little bit more next time, and then I can do a little bit more next time. But if you guess wrong, and because if you've never done it before, the very first time is going to be guessing, right? You're going to say... And here's the thing, a plan is a theory, right? It's a theory that says, if I do this action, it'll produce that outcome. Your theory is either going to be right or wrong. So if you say, I'm going to make 10 calls a week, and I'm going to make 10 calls a week is going to produce me $120,000 in revenue, it either will or it won't, right? And if it turns out you did the 10 calls a week and it only produced $80,000, you got to make more calls if you want to get to 120, right? Right? Yep. Um, and so- that reevaluation is to see, is to test your theory. How did my how did my theory show up? Like either either the theory worked or I didn't work the theory, right? Like I said I was going to do 10 calls but I only did 5. So I don't really know if my theory is correct. So why wasn't I able to do that? Right? right? And it allows you to to reevaluate. So yeah, so a plan is a that's why I say it's a living breathing document that you're always reevaluating. Great points. I have a couple of questions I like to ask guests. Um before we kind of wrap up and let people know where they can get hold of you and find out further things. Um, what is your favorite or who is your favorite brand, personal brand or brand and why? Can I give you two? Mm-hmm. Always. <laughs> um, so they're not, they're not company brands. So one is sick kids, sick kids hospital. Um, just that branding sick kids. It's as soon as you hear it, everyone knows like it speaks to compassion, trust, care, excellence, dedication, trust. Like they've done, you know, you hear Sick Kids Hospital and everybody just knows it's a great hospital, right? right? So they've done a brilliant, I think, exercise in branding that place. Um, and the other is, it's funny, it's kind of campy, but it's Batman. Like <laughs> Batman as a brand has yep. endured camp, dark, surrealism, realism, multiple incarnations, bad incarnations, great incarnations, but it always rises above almost every other character in the genre, you know, without any powers, but it's just got these core guiding principles that remain true. You know, this child's pain and love at the center uh, and has a, has a moral fiber, even while being dark. Like it's, it's a brand that has just endured. I, I just think the, the, as a branding ex actually a, a, a buddy of mine, who's a branding expert, 
he says, everything I learned about branding, I learned from Batman. <laughs> that sounds like the title of a book for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I d- that's excellent. I'd never had anybody pick a, uh, a character like that before, but it makes total sense. I love it. Uh, what about a favorite business book or podcast? My, I, I'll give you a podcast, and I hope Shane appreciates this. He doesn't know me, but it is by far my favorite podcast anywhere. It's called The Knowledge Project, and I think every entrepreneur should listen to it. It's not, strictly speaking, a business podcast. It is about thinking, how people think, how people make decisions, uh, mental models, how people achieve excellence. He brings in everything from academics to poker players, to sports figures, to business leaders and investors. Hmm. Um, And they're all really successful. They're all super thoughtful. He gets really, really interesting conversations with people about how they think and how they make decisions. And I think entrepreneurship is fundamentally about decision-making. And if you can improve your decision-making, you'll be a better entrepreneur. Hmm. And some of the people, when you listen to them, you go, oh, that is a highly disciplined approach to, dis- to thinking. Hmm. Okay. I've got my new running podcast to listen to. I'm going to check that one out. Um, <laughs> what about a favorite tool or resource that you're currently enjoying using? Zwift. Zwift. Okay. Yeah. Which is, it's a, so it's, I think you got to be healthy to be a good entrepreneur. Yep. Um, so I'm a, I'm a mountain biker in the summertime and a buddy of mine just turned me on to Zwift and it's basically, I put my mountain bike on this trainer that's connected to this app and you can do long rides. You can do team rides. You can do challenges. You can do workouts, have your computer in front of you. You can talk to other people while you're doing it. It's fantastic. So this is the mountain bikers Peloton, is it? (laughs) Uh, Well, yeah, it's a competitor, but it doesn't have mountain biking. There's road road biking as well. It's it's analogous to Peloton. I think it's a little cheaper. Right. Um, Wonderful. And do you have a do you have a favorite quote? Yeah, I have many, but uh, I'm I'm a big fan of the Stoics. So mm-hmm. um, Me too. one of mine is from Marcus Aurelius, which is now I'll I got I'm gonna modify the quote to degenderize it because he says man, but it's you know waste no more time arguing what a good person should be, be one. Love it. Yeah, I, I just love that quote. <laughs> yeah, I listened to uh, Ryan Holiday a lot. I don't know if you familiar the daily yeah, stoic. Look, he's, he's great he's great yeah. i read the, yeah. the daily stoic every day right wonderful so um w- when we were talking earlier as well uh warren you'd mentioned a new initiative or a new uh, program that you've got running so tell us a little bit about that and what people oh thank you yes involved. i'm in addition to being a business coach i'm a member of a social enterprise called rtg group and for anybody with an organization over 20 and cares about making a difference and cares about like engaging your people this is a, I think it's a fantastic program. It's called the Social Impact Challenge. And what it is, you can challenge people internally or you can challenge other organizations to maximize your social impact. We have a software tool on the back end with an algorithm that allocates points when you accept the challenge related to one of the sustainable development goals. So, and there's some of them are super simple, like leave a note to say thank you to somebody to being, you know, go volunteer at a soup kitchen or go build Habitat for Humanity or something like that. So there's, you can, you can engage with it at any level of commitment you want, but it gets your team super engaged. It also has the ability to just take all these things and put them up on social media. So it helps your brand. You can say, look, our, our organization, our brokerage, our, you know, renovation company, this is the impact we're having as a group and we love doing it. Um, it's super fun. Uh, it gets your team really engaged and it gives you in the back end, it gives you a lot of data and you'll, you'll be surprised to know what your team members really care about and what your customers really care. And that's one of the values of it. One of the things that a lot of this, one of the reasons we developed this, a lot of companies are trying to engage in some form of CSR, like corporate social responsibility. Mm -hmm. The problem is if I say I care about women's rights. And so I'm going to put my money towards a women's rights group, but I've got five people in my organization who care more about the environment or water supply or something. Well, I haven't engaged them now, right? Because I'm doing something that they don't, that's not their thing. Whereas this model, what happens because it's related to all 17 of the sustainable development goals, people can choose to participate in the areas that they care more about, not what you care more about. 
And that makes them feel heard and valued and appreciated. And they get to, as part of the business, um, do something they care about, but in a way that's competitive. And we, we call it competitive kindness. Right. You know, and right. so that, so if anybody is interested in engaging in that, it's, I think it's, it's one of the coolest things that I've been part of. Um, and I hope people engage with it because it really, it helps your business make a difference while making your employees feel they're part of a great place. Okay. Well, we'll make sure we'll put the the website in the show notes. And and what about uh, for people getting hold of you or getting hold of your cool tools? Uh, where do people um, go? Yeah, How so do just they find go you? to warrencoglin.com and there's a cool tools link. If you're interested in what we've talked about, this strategic planning, uh, there is a... Um, what I call a blueprint on how to do it, the seven steps to do this strategic planning effectively. So you just go to warrencoglin.com slash free dash blueprint. And you just put in your name and email and it's free and you'll get access to it. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you very much for sharing all your wisdom today, Warren. I found it fascinating and I'm sure people will want to know more about it. So I appreciate your time today. Yeah, and it's great. And have, have yourself a brandtastic day. You too. Cheers. Thanks. Well, what did you think? Was that brandtastic? Did it give you some ideas and actions that you can take right now to build your business and real estate personal brand? So what's stopping you? Get to it. And if you're wondering where your real estate personal brand currently stands and some steps to make it more brandtastic, you can download our free real estate personal brand checklist at reibranded.com forward slash checklist. That's reibranded.com forward slash checklist. Thank you for listening and have yourself a brandtastic day.